Dale Rooks, a school crossing guard in Florida, tried everything to get cars to slow down as they came through the school crossing intersection there, the school zone, but nothing seemed to work. Cars would just come flying through that area. Until he took a blow dryer, he wrapped it in electrical tape to make it look like a radar gun, and as people would drive through the intersection, he'd point the blow dryer at them. He said it was amazing how they would slam on the brakes and slow right down. It's almost comical, he says. It's amazing how well it works. Just a blow dryer. Why is that? Why do we instinctively slow down when we see a police officer on the side of the road, even if we're going the speed limit? We just look down and slow down. Why? Well, it's because most of us are wise enough to realize the authority that the police officer possesses and the fact that he can write a ticket and we have to pay a fine and all of that sort of thing, and that authority that is behind him in the exercise of the law, we're wise enough to figure that out. And so we're going to check and make sure that we're not doing something wrong. It's just common sense. So wisdom changes our response to authority. Wise people respond appropriately to the authority in this world. Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 8 this morning. That's the subject that we're dealing with in Ecclesiastes 8. We pick up with verse 1 in our study of this book. Ecclesiastes 8 verse 1. Who is like the wise man, and who knows the interpretation of a matter? A man's wisdom illumines him and causes his stern face to beam. Now, drop down to verse 9. All this, Solomon says, I have seen and applied my mind to every deed that has been done under the sun, here on earth, wherein a man has exercised authority over another man to his hurt. These two verses act like bookends. Technically, it's called an inclusio, but you don't care about that, right? They're bookends to the text. And they explain in these two bookends the point of the verses in between. Verse 1 begins by describing how wisdom brightens the face of a person. His or her eyes light up with wisdom. They sparkle, they're sharp. Wise people have that look, you see. Wisdom also, he says, changes the stern face of a person. Now, the word translated stern or boldness, if you have the King James, or hard, if you have the New International Version, the Hebrew word that is behind those translations is a word that means a stronghold, a fortress, and refers to stubbornness or rebellion. It is an unwillingness to change one's behavior because of pride, self-interest, whatever the case might be. So a person with a hard face, a bold face, is demonstrating with his facial expression that he is rebelling against authority. 
Parents, have you ever seen that look in your teenage son or daughter's eyes that says, they may be doing what I say, they may be not saying anything, but they got that look, you know? <laughs> that's the stern face. That's that, that look in their face that tells us they're really not surrendering or submitting, even though they might say they are. That's what he's talking about here. So he says that this stubborn, hard-hearted person that you can see the facial expression, you can see it in their eyes, well, he says wisdom changes that. Wisdom changes that look, that attitude, if you will, that is behind the look, from a hard to a soft face. The Hebrew word translated changes here means to change like a person changes their clothes. So, wisdom changes the hard face into a soft face like a person changes his or her clothes. And that's what wisdom does in the person's heart. And that's verse 1. Verse 9 talks about authority because the whole text is dealing with authority. One human, he says, has authority or rules over another person. He has power over that person to control that person, the fate, the consequence for that person. And in this situation, the person in authority rules over the other person to his hurt. Now, the word hurt means that which is painful, that which causes discomfort. The NIV and the King James translate this as ruling over a man to the ruler's own hurt or discomfort or pain. The Hebrew here is ambiguous. It's hard to tell. But the English Standard Version translates it as ruling over another person to the subject's hurt or pain. And that is probably the better way to translate the text here. So wisdom changes our faces from hard to soft when we are faced with the situation where someone has power over us and can cause us pain or discomfort. That's his point in this passage. So the police officer can write a ticket and cause me pain. Therefore, wisdom tells me to change my attitude when I face that police officer because he has authority. Obedience, then, begins with respect for authority. Verses 2 through 4. I say, Solomon says, in light of my argument here, I say, keep the command of the king because of the oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave him. Do not join in an evil matter, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since the word of the king is authoritative, who's going to say to him, what are you doing? So we are to obey the commands of the king because, literally, of the oath of God. The NIV translates this because you took an oath before God. The English Standard Version translates it because of God's oath to him. Once again, the Hebrew is ambiguous. But 
in principle, in practical terms, it doesn't really matter which way you translate this verse. The point is that God's power stands behind the authority of the king. By virtue either of my oath to the king to obey him, or God's oath to the king to stand behind him in his authority. Either way, God stands behind the authority of government, if you will, the king, so we should obey our government. Jesus expressed the same thought when he said, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Good verse for tax season, right? Render unto Caesar, your government, the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. A wise person respects the God-given authority of government. We who follow God do not have the right to rebel or become hard-hearted toward those in authority over us. God establishes the power of government, and God expects us to respect the power of government over us, even if we don't agree with it, because God establishes the authority structure called government. Caesar, for example, in Jesus' day, was a morally evil person. He did horrible things to people, and the Jewish people particularly were abused under Caesar and did not want to pay their taxes to Caesar. That was one thing for sure. They wanted to be out from under the Roman authorities. And Jesus says, you may not agree with what Caesar is doing, but God establishes the principle of government. You pay to Caesar what Caesar is due, and to God what God is due. It's simply a matter of godly wisdom to respect the authority of government, even if we do not like what the government is doing. And Solomon goes on to say, we should not be in a hurry to leave his presence, meaning the king's presence. Don't be quick to leave his presence, meaning that we should not quickly resign from service to the king. That's what it meant to leave his presence. It was, I resign, I quit, I'm out of here, I'm not serving you as king anymore. And we should not be quick to do that as godly citizens, even if we don't like what the power of the king is doing. Solomon also tells us we should not join in an evil matter. That refers to a rebellion against the authority of the king. That is generally an unwise thing to do, join a revolt against the government. That's what Solomon is saying. Because he says, hey, the king can do whatever he pleases. He has that power. He has the authority over us. And who can question his authority? Who can say, hey, hey, man, what are you doing? He has that power. Now, we don't live under a king. We live in a republic. And we certainly have citizen rights that are in, established for us in this republic of America. And we can, we can exercise those rights, and we should exercise those rights to speak and to vote and to 
say the things that we need to say in terms of our conscience before God. But there still is a final authority. I'm not talking about God. God's obviously the final authority ultimately, but even within government, even within a country, there's final authority in that country. And when the Supreme Court, for example, rules it is the law of the land, and we are called then to respect that authority because it is generally the wise thing to do to respect that authority. Now the Apostle Paul says much the same thing in Romans chapter 13 where the Apostle Paul following this same theme says everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. So in the New Testament, Paul is saying exactly the same thing. The godly, wise person has a responsibility to submit to the governing authorities or God, or incur judgment, consequence for violating that authority. All right, what about... We love the hypotheticals, don't we? We immediately want to go to all of those whatabouts or what-ifs. What about the powerful official who abuses his authority over us? You mean like Caesar? Well, Solomon is going to address that beginning in verse 10, and we look at that next week. (laughs) So come back next Sunday. (laughs) Isn't that great? (laughs) Come back next Sunday. That's a commercial for next Sunday, and we'll talk about some of those exceptions that he deals with beginning in verse 10, because obviously there are exceptions. And there are struggles that we have with this principle. But for now, this morning, in general, the wise person will respect authority because God calls us to respect authority. And you know what? We don't like that concept, particularly today in our world. And that's why it's important to spend some time talking about it here and not immediately jump to all of those exceptions we love to talk about. I think one of the fundamental problems in our society today, in American society, is quite frankly a lack of respect for authority. A lack of respect for authority. From the government down to the job, to the family and parents, there is generally a a very bad lack of respect for authority in our culture. And what we're being taught in God's word, and we don't like it, we want to rebel against it, is that God establishes authority structures in his world. And government certainly is one of those authority structures, the king, our government. But parents also have their spheres of authority. And church leaders have their spheres of authority. 
and employers have their spheres of authority. God establishes these authority structures in order to manage his world. God establishes the authority structure of family, of church, of government, of employment, and we have to learn to respect those spheres of authority because God calls us to live in obedience to his authority. On October 25, 2010, a massive earthquake set off a tsunami that struck some Indonesian islands. We seem to be hearing a lot about earthquakes and tsunamis lately, don't we? Especially on that whole fault line over there. Well, this particular tsunami leveled whole villages, leaving hundreds dead or missing. According to the survivors, the deaths could have been avoided or at least minimized. Unfortunately, the tsunami warning system, the buoys that were located off of this particular island, were not working properly. And as a result, they didn't alert the the islanders to the danger until it was too late. See, since 2004, experts have improved the tsunami detection system. The DART buoys, as they're called, measure the wave of heights, the wave height out in the ocean and send signals back warning people to get away from the shoreline. So if a buoy measures an unusual wave, it transmits that information to shore. The system is supposed to provide the early warning signals for islanders to prepare for the oncoming danger. Unfortunately, according to a recent report, the buoys have become Many of them detached and drifted away. Sensors have failed. As many as 30% have been inoperable at any one time. The maintenance is not being done on them. And as a result, the buoys often fail to warn people of the coming danger. Let me suggest an analogy to you this morning. God has established... Government, government structures of authority, I should say structures of authority, one of which is government, family, parents, church, all of these structures. God has established authority structures. These authority structures act like the warning buoys in our society. And when these authority structures begin to break down, the warning system is impaired and society as a whole is jeopardized. And I think that we are ripe today, if if not, we're already seeing it maybe, but we are certainly ripe today for an immoral tsunami to sweep across our culture because we have neglected the authority structures that God establishes. And we have denied those authority structures. There is simply little respect for authority any longer. And God says when that happens, watch out. Bad things are coming. 
So you see, first of all, for all of us, obedience begins with a respect for authority. Even if you disagree with the authority, there is a respect that ought to be there for authority in our world. And secondly, Solomon says there is a right time and a right way for everything. Verses 5 and 6. He who keeps a command experiences no trouble, for a wise heart knows the proper time and procedure. For there is a proper time and procedure for every delight when a man's trouble is heavy upon him. Even when you have tough times, even when things are going bad, there is a proper time and a proper procedure for everything in life. And the wise person knows when and where to do and say and function and make choices because he's following God. While staying with some friends, Tim and Jill Jones, Kevin Miller, who's vice president of Christianity Today, watched their little hamster, Hammy, in his cage. And he uses this analogy. I think it's a good one. He says, Hammy, the hamster, had everything his little heart could desire. Nice home with warm shavings, food, drink, and a little wheel that he could run around the inside of to get his exercise every day. But he says, Hammy liked to do one thing. He liked to climb on top of the wheel, lie on his back draped around the top of that wheel, and relax there. The problem is that the wheel would start to move. And Hammy would go right around, and he'd come flying down that side, bang his head on the bottom of the cage, get up and shake his head, walk around, climb back on the wheel, drape himself on his back over the wheel, and they'd watch him do it again, bang. And he'd get up, he'd get on the top, and bang, he did his head again, over and over again. This guy never seemed to learn. (laughs) Why would a hamster with everything that he can want in life, want to do that to himself and just keep hurting himself. And then Kevin Miller in his article says, the bigger question is, why do we as humans follow the same self-destructive patterns in life over and over and over again? When are we going to smarten up? We never get to where we want because we are always doing what we did. And repentance is all about changing that pattern to follow God. See, think about it this way. God's will is a path, not a point. God's will is a process, not an event. And God's commands are the signposts marking that path. So God, God marks out the pathway with his laws, with his authority structures that he sets up. Home, government, church, job, all of these things set up authority structures. And if we follow God's commands in his word, certainly, then we will stay on the path that God has marked out. For us. We will say no to all that other stuff. 
if we follow the laws of our land, if we follow the laws of mom and dad, if we, if we live within these authority structures, then we avoid evil. We stay on the path. And that's the way to find God's will in life. Stay on the path. Don't think of God's will then so much like a point or an event. Oh, I've got to find God's will in this moment. That's not the issue. We don't have to land on the point. It's a path that we are walking. It's a process. And Solomon says that as you walk that path of life, with all of its twists and turns, it is very important that you stay within the boundaries that God has marked out through his law. And when you do that, the wise heart, he says, given that scenario, the wise heart will know the proper procedure, the proper course of action to take in any given situation. We will know the best course of action we should take as we walk on that path. We will know how to apply our knowledge to each choice we have to make as we walk on the path. But we've got to be on the path in order to operate that way. And there are lots of curves in the path, aren't there? God throws you curves all the time, doesn't he? Oh, wow. New thing. New obstacle. Didn't see that one coming. What am I going to do? What's the choice here? And God won't always tell you what to do in that moment. What he does promise in his word, James chapter 1, is the wisdom for you to make choices as you walk in that pathway. There is a right time and a right way for everything you delight in in life. And sometimes the timing is very important. It's not necessarily that God doesn't want that delight for your life, but maybe it's not the right time for that delight in your life. Wisdom is walking that path and making those choices. And God says, when you're following him, you will know the right time, the right procedure, the right course of action at every juncture in life. And that's the wisdom way. That's the path principle for following the Lord. The key, though, is to avoid getting off the path. Because once you walk off that path, now you've got a whole host of other problems. You've got to get back on the path. So once you get outside of the pathway, then you're dealing with other issues. So we avoid getting off the path by making sure to obey God's word and what he says, to follow and live within the authority structures that God has set up, and then we are free. We are free to exercise judgment, good judgment, as we go through the process called life. But if we don't obey God's word, then we get off the path and we get in trouble. David Gibson's friend bought a 19-foot jet boat and invited David along for its maiden voyage. The boat is made of steel and fitted with a V8 engine. This thing is made for power. And 
They put the boat in the north fork of the Snake River. The water was quite low because of the drought conditions and heavy irrigation in the area. They eased the throttle up until they were going about 35 miles per hour down the Snake River. And suddenly, they hit a sandbar. And they ran totally aground on that sandbar. They stepped out onto the sandbar, barely covered with one inch of water by the time they'd stopped. Another boater came along, and it took the two boats and all of their people about three hours to dig them out and get them off the sandbar. And the other boater said he knew the channel well. He would take them back to the landing because if they just followed him exactly, they would get back to the landing okay. And so they began to follow the other boat. The other boat eased it up to about 35 miles an hour, and they're flying along, and they're having a great time. And David said his friend just kind of deviated a little bit off to the side as they're flying along behind that boat, and guess what? Wham! They hit a gravel bar. He said he went flying through the windshield, broke it in all kinds of pieces, and they were all hung up on another sandbar. The lead boat came back, and you know what the driver said? I told you to follow me exactly. you got to stay in the channel. How often does God say that to us, right? How often does God say to us, I told you to stay in the channel. I told you to stay on the path. Just follow me and you'll be all right, and you can enjoy it. Why? Why, God? I just wanted to have a little fun. Why is it so important to stay within God's boundaries for life? Because, third principle, nobody escapes the consequences of wickedness. Nobody escapes the consequences of wickedness. Verse 7. If no one knows what will happen, who can tell him when it will happen? No man has authority to restrain the wind with the wind or authority over the day of death, and there is no discharge in the time of war, and evil will not deliver those who practice it. Then he goes on in verse 9 to talk about that authority structure again. None of us know the future. I mean, anybody in here know the future? You can foretell exactly what's going to happen to others in this room or even yourself this week. None of us know the future. So who can tell us what's going to happen this week or next month or next year? Nobody can tell us what's going to happen tomorrow. Only God knows the future. So only God can mark out the path for our lives. Is that right? That's why it's so important to stay within the boundaries that God marks out. And he does that most often through the authority structures that he places in our lives. It's not smart to reject God's rules, the things that he lays out for our lives, because the rules all have consequences built into them. 
like the law of gravity requires that what goes up must come down. So we try to violate God's laws and end up with the consequences of violating those laws. We can't blame anyone else when we do that. We've got to live with those consequences now because the law carries the consequence that we get in the end. Jan Davis, 60 years of age, a veteran professional parachutist. She was very active in a sport called base jumping. That's leaping off fixed objects like cliffs and towers and sky rises and all of that sort of thing with a parachute, of course. It was while base jumping that she fell to her death on October 22, 1999. Her husband, who was filming the jump, And several reporters were stunned when Jan, the fourth of fifth jumpers that day, fell for 20 seconds, crashed into the rocks. The chute had not opened properly, and she was dead. Now, she was jumping off of 3,200-foot granite cliff El Capitan. And guess what? It's illegal to jump off El Capitan in Yosemite. The law was adopted there because there had already been six deaths in Yosemite, along with numerous injuries due to base jumping. The five jumpers, including Jan, were in fact protesting the law. That's what they were there doing against base jumping. And they were jumping to prove that the sport was safe and that they shouldn't have this law. And she dies. These jumpers not only knew the risks, they also knew the law. And they intentionally broke the law. And Jan Davis paid with her life. In a similar way, many, many people think they can deliberately violate God's law. But eventually people learn, sometimes the hard way, through the consequences, that God's laws are there for a good reason. Our well-being, our success in life. Now, verse 8. He says, No man has authority to restrain the wind with the wind or authority over the day of death, and there is no discharge in the time of war, and evil will not deliver those who practice it. The Hebrew structure here is very important. The first three clauses of this phrase are parallel to one another and lead up to the conclusion. So if the first three clauses are true, then the conclusion is true. Number one, Solomon says, no man has the power to contain the wind with the wind. Number two, nobody has the power over the day of his death. Number three, there is no discharge from war. Therefore, evil will not rescue those who practice evil. That's his argument here. So, first of all, we don't have the ability to control the wind by ourselves. Now, obviously, we have lots of inventions today that I'm sure they didn't have in their day in which we attempt to harness the power of the wind. But he's not talking about all of that kind of thing. He's just talking about personally, on a personal level, nobody has the power to control the wind. If I could, I would make sure that the wind didn't blow very hard when I wanted to go out in my kayak. But I don't have the ability to do that. 
Of course, if I was able to do that, then somebody else who wanted to sail would say, I want the wind to really blow hard. You see, we don't have the ability in ourselves to control the wind like that. Secondly, none of us have the power over the day of our death, the moment of our death. Now, sometimes people think they do. Doctors certainly have a tendency to think they do. But nobody has the power over death except God. Only God knows the moment. Theologically, death, physical death, is defined as the moment when the spirit leaves the body. That's not measurable by science. And I've sat in many a room where we were dealing with that issue. It's not measurable by science. Only God knows the moment when the spirit leaves the body. We humans don't have control over that. Finally, there's no discharge from war. The commander is not going to say, hey, you don't like the battle, just go ahead and leave. It's okay. He doesn't discharge us in the middle of a battle. That's called going AWOL. So don't expect the commander to let you go in the middle of the battle. Since these things are true, then the fourth is true. Evil will not deliver those who practice evil. Again, he's talking about on human level. He's talking about on earth. Wickedness is not going to rescue those who practice it from the consequences that God imposes. Now, he's going to deal with some of the exceptions to that. That's next week. Come back next Sunday. (laughs) But in general, the principle is there. Evil will not rescue those who practice evil. And often the consequences are the natural consequences that God has built into his universe. So just like the law of gravity, there's a law of righteousness. And the law of gravity cannot be defied without predictable results. And the law of righteousness cannot be defied without predictable consequences. Now, that's a general truism because, of course, there are exceptions to both the law of gravity and the law of righteousness. Uh, A plane, an airplane, can defy the law of gravity for a while, as long as it has the fuel to keep it going. But once it runs out of fuel, it can no longer defy the law of gravity. And so a person, and Solomon will deal with this next week, an evil person can certainly defy God's law of righteousness for a while, as long as he has the power and the ability, but eventually he can no longer defy the law of righteousness, and he will pay the consequence ultimately to God. For now, it is very important, he says, to understand that nobody, certainly nobody ultimately escapes the consequences of sin. But even in life, sin has a way of paying consequences eventually. I like the way this anonymous saying expresses the principle. Being lost is living by a set of values that systematically dismantles your life. We talk about people who are saved and people who are lost, meaning those who have come to Christ and those who have not come to Christ. Well, being lost is living by a set of values 
that are against God, obviously, that systematically dismantle your life in the end. In the 19th century, Marie de Gaulle left her children to follow the most famous pianist of her day, Hungarian composer Franz Liszt. After the infatuation that she had with this man cooled and the reality of missing her own children, for she was married, she had her own children, she left all of that to follow this composer off in their love affair, their lust affair, really. After the reality of missing her children set in and she could no longer have them any longer, Marie is said to have made this observation. When one has smashed everything around oneself, one has also smashed oneself. Hmm. When one has smashed everything around oneself, one has also smashed oneself. Very true. All that she valued in life was now smashed. So she'd smashed herself. That's the law of consequence. This week, some old photographs surfaced of Eva Braun, Adolf Hitler's girlfriend, and in the last moments of his life, his wife. They married in those last moments. He kept her hidden from the German public during the days of power, but she was clearly one who was his partner in evil. After learning about the failed plot to kill Adolf Hitler, Eva Brown wrote him, From our first meeting, I swore to follow you anywhere, even unto death. I live only for your love. Signed, Eva. She illustrates the principle of this verse. Eva Brown died in the bunker with Adolf Hitler. She made her choices, and she suffered the consequences. It's not always in eternity future just where the consequences are experienced. Many consequences are experienced here and now in this life. Maybe not immediately, but eventually. Evil will not rescue those who practice evil. And every evil dictator needs to remember that principle. For God is the one ultimately in control. And living for God is what a wise person does. Living to please him. Before Adoniram Judson became the pioneer of American foreign missions, and he is known as the father of the modern American missionary movement, even before that, he was a rebel. He finished at the top of his college class, He headed to New York City to seek fame and fortune as a writer and an actor. He had been brought up in a godly home. His parents loved the Lord, taught him God's word, and he rebelled against it all in college. He had renounced his father's faith in a personal God. His education had taken him, he said, beyond any primitive notions like that. Prayer, of course, was totally meaningless to him. 
But by the age of 20 in New York City, Adoniram didn't feel right about his life. Things were not going well, and disillusioned with life in the city, he headed back to his home in Plymouth, Massachusetts, stopping for a night at a wayside inn. Adoniram had trouble sleeping that night because a man in the next room was critically ill and moaning and groaning in pain so loudly that Adoniram couldn't sleep in his room in the inn. Obviously, his next-door neighbor was dying. And in the darkness of his room that night, Adoniram began to reflect on his own life, began to think, what would happen if he died? At times during the long hours, he considered returning to his Christian faith, the faith of his father and his mother. But he rejected that. He thought his, his college best friend, a man by the name of Jacob Eames, he thought, oh, wow, I can just hear what he will say if I go back to my faith. He will ridicule me. He will make fun of me. And I can't do that. I, I just, I can't go there because Jacob would make, make a mess of my life. He would just ridicule me so much. He waited for morning to come. Early the next morning, Adoniram got ready to leave, and he went to the innkeeper, and he said, that poor old man in the next room, how is he? The innkeeper said, well, he passed away early this morning. He died. And he wasn't old at all. He was a young man, about your age. For some reason, Adoniram was, felt prompted to ask, what was his name? Now, he didn't know anybody in that area. So we don't know why he asked that question. But the innkeeper replied, his name was Jacob Eames. Adoniram's college friend died in the room next to him that night. He was wiped out. He just couldn't believe it. His best friend, the one that had led him away from his faith in God, he'd rejected it all, had died in terror and agony. He'd heard him screaming next door. Dazed, he returned to Massachusetts and to his father. Echoing through his mind was the word lost, lost, lost. But it took three more months of intellectual struggle in his family home before he, quote, made a solemn dedication of himself to God, unquote. And from that point onward, Adoniram Judson lived to please God, and God used him as a pioneer for world missions in Burma and across America as he shared the good news of Jesus Christ to those who were lost. What does God need to do to get our attention? Father, it's so easy to get caught up in the stuff of this world and forget that you have a calling in our lives. You have directed us. You have set up home, family, parents, government, 
church where we can live within your boundaries and we can follow you on this pathway of life. Help us to heed the advice of parents, family, and church, and government, and live within those boundaries of your word that we might live to please you and to follow you with all that we do and say, for there is the greatest happiness and fulfillment in life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.